What's up? It's Rosillo with the Ryan Rosillo podcast on The Ringer and Spotify. Make sure you're checking us out every Tuesday and every Thursday episodes through an NBA playoff run that is as unpredictable as maybe any that I've ever seen in covering this sport. And also the NFL draft that doesn't have the top headliners at QB, but our guest, I put it up against anybody, the best draft analyst in the business to be joining us almost every week prior to the draft and a little break from all the sports, having fun, telling stories and trying to give out some life advice to the listeners out there that feel like they need it. And by the way, just like sports, I don't always get that stuff right either, but at least it's fun to listen to. Listen and follow the Ryan Rosilla podcast on Spotify. It's the Ringer NBA show presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find out what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 years and older, 18 and older in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. Whether it's taking all your little ones to their sporting events or everybody getting together and taking a ride to the beach, the all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped for any adventure. With features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud. Or standard third-row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. to group chat i am justin barrier joining me as always rob mahoney big waz guys did you hear pat riley yesterday talk about how every week he opts in with his wife you know he brings her back he rolls it back <laughs> he runs it it's back kinda, yeah this is that's how i feel about this podcast and you guys i just want you to know that every week i opt in and i decide to come to work with you guys <laughs> I was about to say, if you feel the same way he does about his wife, I'm like, do we got to get HR involved here? <laughs> it's all love, you know? Um, you guys were just at the NBA Finals. Yes, sir. Yeah. How was that? What, what was it like in person? Give us some on-the-ground details. Uh, NBA Finals, good event, as it turns out. You know? Good <laughs> yeah. good basketball, loud building. Uh, ball goes through hoop. It worked out pretty well. <laughs> Okay. So this is the first time I've been to the finals since 2016, which I went to the two games in Cleveland where literally by game four, where Cleveland just got mauled and they were down 3-1. And I remember taking a Snapchat of this girl who couldn't have been more than like 19, 20 years old. And she was on the, she was sitting on the sidewalk outside of a bar, uncontrollably sobbing. <laughs> right this is wow. after cleveland went down to 3-1 i was just like guys i get it like we love the team but really is this what it's come to um that was mm. not the scene in golden state even after game one of course they ended up winning game two 
And um, I thought the atmosphere inside of Oracle was pretty good. I heard some people say it was like, man, I thought it was damn good. But again, as I like to tell people, most of my NBA in-game experience has been Clipper games where the loudest cheers are for free Chick-fil-A. So I don't mm. know, like Oracle, excuse me, Chase Center seems like a big step up in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, I've spent the last, most of the last two years in my apartment. So any remotely loud building <laughs> feels pretty, pretty freaking loud to me. But Waz, I think we need to circle back on your Bay Area evaluation. You know, while oh, you were nice. out in the Bay, it didn't seem like you were enthused to be in that particular locale. Look, oh, no. I, I, look, <laughs> I stayed in San Francisco to be as close to the stadium as possible. Um, in the financial district or whatever, which is close to Union Square, close to all this other stuff too. It's not it's not hard to get anywhere um, um, important. And what I've found out is that basically it's kind of hard to go somewhere late and either eat or listen to loud music anywhere in the city, which is just like, as a New Yorker, it's something that I've taken for granted, even in LA, which is pretty early too. Um, and that's a problem for me. And then, you know, you ask people like, all right, so what do people get jazzed about paying these r absurd rents and all of that in San Francisco? Nature. I'm like, yeah, nah. I, I just, I, I, I'm just, I, 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 look, man, I hate trashing people's cities because it comes off as a certain do way, you? especially as a native New Yorker. It's like <laughs> expected of you to just hate on everything, which I generally fall in the category of. But like, I, I just, I'm trying to love it. I'm trying to embrace SF as a place, as a concept. I can't do it. And then Friday night, I went to Oakland with Amin, um, saw my man Mark Spears, my man Vinny Goodwill, my man Jay Adande, you know, black media Illuminati shit. And... <laughs> Oakland is just the exact opposite. As soon as we, I got out the mm. damn Uber, it was people everywhere. It was loud as hell. There's people playing like music out of boombox. There's people playing live music. This is all at like 10:30 at night, mind you. I'm like, all right, yeah, this is this is more the speed that that I'm looking for. However, I still think I'm gonna stay in San Francisco because I don't feel like <laughs> traveling far for games. Convenience <laughs> wins every yes, time. Yes, every time. <laughs> Rob, is that your Oakland experience too? Absolutely. Black media Illuminati. <laughs> well, I, I don't get the invite to those particular meetings, but you know, you know, maybe next I'll, time. I'll wait. I'll, I'll hold out hope. But I think, look, I think if we come back for Game Five, I guess we have to come back for Game yes, Five. Yes, we do. Uh, we're we're gonna try to win Waz over again. We already got one. Look, every person who's on this call right now, us, Isaiah, Ben, we all went out to a nice Ringer team dinner. JV, Great you dinner. did not get that invite. Sorry. I think I must have paid for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I forgot to text you. I'll, I'll hit you up next time. But I think we're going to win Waz over one meal at a time in SF. That 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 food, that Peruvian rotisserie chicken was, mwah, they had a hot sauce that was perfect. That was the grub I did very, very much enjoy. I ate so much damn food in San Francisco. Mm. Thank you, Spotify. We love to hear it. <laughs> SF. I didn't even know SF was a thing. So I'm just learning so much from you guys. <laughs> Um, all right. On the docket for today, we're going to get into some coaching hot stove because some moves are starting to percolate, starting to get some business done on that end uh, as we turn to the offseason or at least 28 teams in the NBA does. But first, let's talk about the NBA finals, the big event 
on everyone's schedule this week. Uh, we're going into game three on Wednesday. This We're recording on Tuesday morning. Uh, so we're a little bit in between. You know, we've already assessed everything happening in the first two games. So we want to preview a little bit going into game three. Figure we'll play a little fact or fiction finals edition. Uh, and let's start it here as a way to kind of maybe just get a grasp of this series. Uh, fact or fiction, Draymond Green was right. Now, this could apply to a lot of different things because Draymond has said many, many things. Uh, but specifically, and Robbie wrote about this the other day, uh, after game one, he basically suggested that the Celtics below average three-point shooters would not do so again. Al Horford, Derek White, Marcus Smart shot 15 for 23 from three in the first game, two for seven in the second game, and obviously they won the first, lost the second. Do you think ultimately that estimation of like what was going to happen is right or is there more to this i mean he he unquestionably was right right like just by the box score was right but this i think was a little more complex than draymond up at the front of the class in the tweed jacket teaching us about regression to the mean (laughs) uh they played totally differently the warriors did defensively they changed some of their matchup stuff they ramped up their defensive energy they actually closed out to those same guys who were hitting shots. Thank you. In, including in, in the first half of this game, too. Like, Derek White hit hit two threes. And then after that, the Warriors started taking him seriously. There was one possession where I think it was Draymond and I want to say Gary Payton both closed out on a Derek White three and made him travel. So that's the difference in the kind of intensity and the kind of focus that those guys are getting at this point in the series is now you're getting a double closeout from two of the best defenders on the team. That's what you have warranted in terms of the Warriors' attention. Yeah, I think Draymond, his overall point at that presser was that there's no reason for the Warriors to, you know, jump out the window and 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 act like this series is, is in hand for Boston, right? There's plenty of things that they could do. I don't know that he was right about the shooting part. Um, those threes that they took in game one, there were a couple of Derek White threes that were like, okay, this guy's ridiculously open. I mean, he made a ridiculously hard shot. But most of those other threes, as Rob mentioned, were practice level, test the wind with your finger, take a three type of situation. So... I don't think he was wrong about that. And where, I mean, right about that. And I think where he was super wrong is that Boston's defense just wasn't up to snuff in this game. And, you know, in the first half I tweeted of game one, I was, you know, it was like, uh, are they going to start playing Steph Curry like he's the best shooter that ever lived? Or are they going to treat him as if he's Rajon Rondo and sag off of his, um, you know, his pull-up three-pointers? It, it was ridiculous. And I think a lot of the stuff they did in this game was just bad defensive execution. Big Al was scared to come up to the level. They're losing Steph in transition again. Um, It was rare to see Steph do the hard, you know, jab step into the paint, step back, uh, pull up three over a guy, creating space, which is like, as far as energy consumption, those are the hardest things to get off in the game. It's rare that he had to do that. Most of the time, he's coming off a screen, nice and calm. His screener freaking plants a guy so he's wide open. And he's just like, look, I've been doing this my whole life. This is easy. So, yeah, no, Draymond was not right about that. Yeah, before we pivot to to what Boston was doing on defense and the Warriors were doing on offense, I do want to like address some of what the Warriors were doing defensively first here because I th- I do think this fits into my kind of follow up question. Rob, you brought up kind of the two key aspects here. Was it like the physicality that jumped off the screen if you were watching from home, like I was, just because Draymond was involved in so many kerfuffles, let's say near technicals, 
should have been technicals, whatever you want to call them? Um, or was it more like a schematic thing? And because like a lot has been made in the aftermath of the physicality and probably because it's so, I don't know. It's just like, it's easy to talk about. I think because oh Draymond's involved in the near text. I get out of my mentions about the damn missed calls. I hate ref Twitter, right. by the way. Yeah. Right. But I mean, you guys were there. So like how much did the physicality that Draymond and the Warriors played with, did it really like you think affect things? Well, now I want to just start tracking potential technicals. You know, we track potential mm. assists. Can we can we track every post confrontation kerfuffle Draymond is in just to get a running tally of what's going on? He just to, just to check the the Twitterati and the Celtics claims against the facts. But uh, <laughs> I will say this just briefly: the the non double tech with Jalen Brown was pretty egregious. It was, it was noticeable. Uh, eg- see, egregious implies that we care that he like we wanted him to get ejected. I would rather all things being equal, he not get ejected. And by the right. way, um, I was sitting next to Nate Duncan for this game, and he very astutely, before the call was even made, he was like, Zach Zarber doesn't like to throw people out. And that's what ended up happening. Like, Zach Zarber was like, bro, we're not throwing this dude out in the first quarter of the damn game or whatever it was for this regular playoff little shove-it match. Like, although... I thought it was hilarious that he used he used him as an ottoman. He just rested his two <laughs> legs on the dude. That shit was so funny. But I'm, you know, I don't want to see guys get kicked out of game for that kind of stuff. This is the NBA Finals, man. It should be decided on the court. Yeah, if you're a ref, that's the reputation you want. Is the Absolutely. Zach Zarber rep? You want to be the guy who doesn't throw people out. Don't ruin the game. Yeah, no, I I agree with you guys. I just think like. I wonder if Draymond is almost finding the loophole here where he knows if he gets one tech, he can kind of do whatever he wants because nobody's going to want to throw him out. And like, he seemed to even up his aggression after he got that first tech. And so I don't want to give him an advantage. That's all. Yeah. I mean, I think that's fair. And he certainly, I mean, he is habitual line stepper Draymond green. Right. So there, there is a history of that kind of behavior. Absolutely. I think you're right that his physicality, his energy played a huge role in that game. I mean, it dictated terms from the opening possession. He ripped the ball, or at least jump ball, like you know, locked up Al Horford on the very first offensive possession for the Celtics. That was kind of who he was throughout this game. Into people, challenging people, pushing, holding, doing everything he could get away with. And that changed a lot of what they were doing in terms of their matchups and what they were able to do defensively. Like when you shift the line and you shift the battleground like that against a team that's as talented and as capable as the Celtics, you're going to win some ground doing that stuff. Uh, But as far as like, was it his physicality or was it their strategic decisions as a team that kind of swung the defensive balance of this game? They seem kind of inextricable to me because Mm -hmm. the decision to put Draymond on Jalen Brown, for example, which was a big matchup change in this game, that allows you to get into Jalen Brown more because Clay Thompson isn't on him anymore, kind of like treading water and holding on for dear life. So once you change that matchup, you put yourself in a position to be more physical, if that makes sense. Yeah, and there was, to speak even further to that, there were some, like, strategic changes behind the play. Like, even when guys were getting penetration, you know, people like Otto Porter and stuff were doing great at zoning up these guys. And Jason Tatum had an incredible floor game in game one. He had 13 assists. And so what they did was they... They timed their zone-ups, they timed their switches, they they timed their helps, 
And, you know, Jason Tatum, God bless him, he's gotten better throughout his career at playmaking and finding people. He ain't no damn Luka Doncic. And, mm. you know, a couple of times he threw into some turnovers and stuff like that. Like, they were smarter about their defense. But I th- didn't think Boston was getting, like, horrible looks mm. at all. Like, it didn't feel that way. Um, in fact, they came out and they were winning this game, something like 23 to 12 or something like that, to start the game. Like I said, I I thought it was on the other end where they sort of lost the plot. And I think, you know, like Jason Tatum, he, I think, smartly was trying to draw contact, trying to get some fouls, trying to get to the line. And I think he did it a few times in timely fashion to, like, stop a couple of runs, right? Like, where it's like, all right, cool, I'm going to get two free throws here to stop the bleeding. But oftentimes it's just like, yo, these guys are kind of smaller than you. Just rising fire over these dudes. You're a great mid-range shooter. You are great with that step back to your left. Just shoot over these cats. I feel like that's a direct knock on our friend the mitten. You know? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think it's unavoidable that the mitten minutes made a difference. Yeah. One might say someone saw this coming going into the series. Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> I, uh, I did not know I did not know Verity was gonna come in here and do his freaking Ric Flair strut and take a victory lap here. Listen, first game Al Horford in his 15 year career just happens to make six three pointers, most he's ever yep. made. What, what did he One do? Might in, have called in, him. What, what, did he, what did he do in game two? That's why we didn't lead the podcast with this because mm, okay. <laughs> Okay. But the question was specifically who's the most important player. And like okay. the fact that he didn't play so well, one might argue, <laughs> means that his effect on the game was very important to whether or not they win or lose. Anyway, no, but I, I do wonder if like those sort of rotational adjustments help too. Like I guess Iguodala is just hurt yet again. Like I, d- I don't really know what's going on with him, but just not having him out there and having someone as active uh, and is is like defensively capable as our friend the mitten like I, I do think it made a difference like plus 15 in 25 minutes and like you know he made an open three which is like all you could really ask for him and uh you know go, uh, they went to him a little bit more than they did in jordan Poole in certain situations and like i think it's it's really important to have another wing defender on a team that's like not getting peak clay and and like doesn't really have anyone to turn to in that role uh, aside from like i guess ostensibly andrew wiggins yeah, so here, here's the difference between Andre Iguodala and Gary Payton. Andre Iguodala, brilliant basketball player. Still, I think, played pretty well defensively in his All first game back. Yeah. All things considered. So, I mean, he got blown sure. by a few times. There were some problems. But he is who he is on, on that end of the court. And he is who he is on offense. And we saw in the third quarter of game two, when the Warriors are going pick and roll bonanza, and the Celtics are doing everything they can to hide Al Horford from Steph just getting torched in the pick and roll. One of the things they did was they put they put Horford on Gary Payton, challenging mm-hmm. the Warriors to use Gary Payton as the screener in the pick and roll. And guess what they did? And it, and it worked. You put Andre Iguodala in that situation, he's rolling down the middle of the lane. Uh, let me tell you, item 1A on the scouting report, Andre Iguodala will not attempt a layup. He won't do it. <laughs> he refuses to do it. He's not a threat rolling down the middle of the floor. He's not a threat moving toward the basket in almost any scenario unless he's like 100% sure he can dunk it. It's, it's just tough to plug him into some of these really dynamic offensive situations at his age and with his current injury 
and expect him to be a finals-level performer or the Andre Iguodala he used to be. He's just not that guy right now. And I like what, what Gary Payton, the second, I've, I've had like this conversation three times this week. Why is he not a junior? I don't know. Um, we got to get one of our intrepid reporters on that. Uh, mm. I, I like what he does in transition. Like there was that phantom call on Jalen Brown, um, which he ended up going to the, the line. He missed the dunk or whatever. But he also puts pressure on transition on the rim. Rob mentioned he's a lob threat when he rolls to the basket. He's just more dynamic. Even when he's not shooting, it's just, you know, if he's going to plant a guy on a solid screen, he's on the Jason Tatum stuff. Yeah, he can shoot over him. But if you get in a guy's airspace and, you know, the way the game is being called, you can be more physical than would normally be expected. You sort of mitigate that advantage that, that Tatum has on you if you were just all up in his grill, right? And so, yeah, I think he did change things def- um, defensively. And and what matters is, like, it's not just how good he is. It's the drop-off from him defensively and his counterparts being pool mm-hmm. and clay. Like, that's why it's huge. It's like the drop-off is so significant. We're like, the Celtics have it in their mind, and you can tell whenever Jordan Poole is on somebody <laughs> – they're just like this, this it's lunchtime you know what i mean we we got to go to work on this kid uh and, and that's just not going to be the case when you're facing wiggins draymond or gary payton the second yeah that trio yeah. when they were on the floor together was the best the warriors have looked defensively all series so far no surprise but the fact that those lineups could also key big offensive runs at the same time that was a huge development. I think that's kind of the lineup to watch right now is wiggins and payton and draymond out there with steph and insert whether it's auto porter or clay whoever you wanted to that fifth spot that's kind of where the warriors are headed i think wow it's mitten time who, who saw it coming um since we're kind of on the subject already why don't we talk about clay uh factor fiction there's something wrong with clay was uh, what do you think do you think facts. like health wise or just like yeah, even yeah, yeah. Facts. psychologically he yeah. once tore his fucking acl <laughs> and his achilles back to back yeah, there's something wrong with the dude. Like, he's not a freaking, you know, a plotting big man. He's a guy that needs to play with movement and quick twitch and explosion. And, yeah, those are two of the worst injuries in the damn sport. And so, no, he doesn't look like a ballerina out there the way he used to. Uh, yeah, that's a fact. His lateral movement is not what it used to be. This is a guy who, again, I'll bring it up every single time. In 2016, that series turned around Klay Thompson put the damn clamps on Westbrook. The most explosive, athletic, quickest, fastest guard we might have ever seen at that position. And Klay Thompson in 2016 just put that man in a straight jacket. He ain't doing that anymore, right? And then conversely on the offensive end, please, when he puts the ball on the floor, it's like, oh my God, just stop it already. Just, just don't even think about it with these damn tarantulas that that Boston got on their team. Like, Clay Thompson, this is not the series for you to be playing with the with, with this dribble, dribble, dribble stuff. So, yeah, he's not the same guy that he used to be, but he's still a threat, right? We talk about in transition what Gary Payton could do at the rim. 
this guy is causing the same amount of panic at the three-point line when he's fanning out. And when he comes off of screens, they got to guard it. When him and Steph are setting screens for each other, that's just panic time for the defense. Like, he's still a threat, but no, he ain't the same guy that he used to be. I mean, if you, you know, unless you, you ain't changed your prescription for your glasses, anybody can see this. Well, I think the question probably is even, is he worse than the diminished version? that we've seen from clay throughout the season. And I think one of my main concerns is he's still operating in his mind That's the as clay Thompson of old. And is he not going, is he going to take too many shots when he's off when he should probably be kicking out? Should they be like limiting his minutes in certain situations when he doesn't have it and giving those minutes to Jordan Poole or maybe Gary Payton or somebody else. And they won't do that because he's clay Thompson. It's possible. I think the reputation could come into play at certain points, especially just from like a Steve Kerr, who do I trust mentality? It's hard not to trust Clay Thompson, given his history, given his ability to explode in potential games like that could be incredibly valuable. But as for whether he's worse in this series compared to the Clay Thompson we've seen throughout the season or in, pre- in previous series, I think he's just playing against an incredible defensive team. And he's smothered by guys like Jalen Brown all game long who are who are making him look even slower and even like even less twitchy because he's going against guys who have size and speed, who have everything that Clay himself used to have and doesn't. It's tough. I think what really is tricky is what you identified, Justin. Like, can Clay be effective without being full boat clay all the time, hunting the kinds of shots he used to hunt? The stuff that really kills me is the stuff inside the arc because it's clear he's not getting to the basket at this point. And so he's settling for a lot of really tough, drifting, fading, one-footed type uh, like pull-up jumpers from mid-range. It's just not what you want out of some of these possessions. And he he's just not a guy who resets the offense. That's not what he does. You know, like if, if the shot isn't there, he's going to keep hunting for a shot. He is He's kind of an end point to a possession. Whereas some of these other Warriors guys will keep working, keep churning, keep facilitating until they find something else. Clay, for better or worse, has never really been that guy. And the thing that kills me about what he's doing right now, when he had that 30-whatever point quarter that one time, all the, the fucking noise coming out of that was, man, he did it on like four dribbles, right? And like, he still looks good coming off of screens on the catch and shoot when he squares his body. That shot still looks amazing to me, whether it's beyond the arc or inside the arc. It's when he starts playing around and doing his God Sham God impersonation that I'm just like, (laughs) all right, I I don't know that this is the, the right route for this team that has Steph, that has Jordan Poole, who are just way better on ball creators. They're just like by measures of like exponentially better. You know, and so it, it, it's suboptimal for him to be playing that way. And I hope that he gets it through his head. And, you know, I got news for y'all, man. Steve Kerr, if you keep fucking around with his defense and you doing all this crazy shit on him, he's going to sit you. This is the finals. Mm. I'm sorry. Uh, like, <laughs> you don't have to play Clay Thompson. He's running pick and rolls now. Like this is a, a whole new Steve Kerr. He's a, he's militant. He's ready oh, to just cut everything. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, even well, if you before, do about the numbers, like it's not like they're not some ridiculously heavy pick and roll attack. It's just for the Warriors. It's like, oh my god, they're actually no, running is, their most effective play. Right, right. No, well, just before we flip to Steph here quickly, uh, do you think Clay likes Jordan Poole? Like, I think it's probably <laughs> tough for 
for every, for anyone to hate Clay Thompson, but there are just like some vibes like permeating on on the TV screen or just like emanating from the TV screen sometimes where I'm like. I don't know if he loves like the Jordan Poole experience and the fact that like he is kind of coming up from behind him. I, I look, um, I think Clay is the type of cat, you know, if you, if, if people will remember when they got KD, he was like, oh man, it's just more open shots for me. Right? right. So I think that's his mentality. No matter what, I don't think he sees Jordan Poole as some entity that he needs to be deferential to. Uh, the guy doesn't see himself as def- deferential to anybody when it comes to offense and getting shots up. Um, I've got it on decent authority that there has been some awkward attention, being that they play the same position and and the same role. But yeah, I, I you know I don't know like when when Jordan Poole made that incredible, which is one of the most craziest shots I've ever seen. Like he he does a move that was wild. And pulls up court. from half court oh. and takes a normal jump shot and swishes that thing. Like you see Steph going nuts um, and just <laughs> loving it. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, that, that those vibes weren't emanating from Clay Thompson. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad it's not just me. Um, but that yeah, hate, that it, it hates Jordan Poole. Do you feel? Do you feel those <laughs> that kind of animosity toward Jordan Poole? I'm pretty indifferent about Jordan Poole, although I do think we kind of anointed him as the next step a little too soon. Like, seems like a pretty adequate uh, sixth man who could potentially turn into something down the road. And let's give it a little more time. Um, all right. But speaking of, of the real stuff, here's my next question. Factor fiction. Uh, Steph is breaking Boston's defense like no other player before this postseason. I'm cribbing this from Nate Duncan, who said this in the midst of game two. Um, and he's not outright saying that Player, other players haven't had more success because Giannis had three 40-plus games. Butler had two pretty amazing games. But it does feel like the Celtics on defense are searching for answers for Steph in ways that they probably wouldn't. And I do wonder if you're looking back on this, the first two games that we've seen, like if you remove the outlier fourth quarter in game one, you look back on it, you're like, yeah, Steph's actually been doing some pretty good work here. Uh, so I wonder, Rob, do you think like there's any truth to that? Yeah. Like, he's he's probably he's giving them more problems than anybody else, even like a Giannis or a Butler. Well, he just gives them different problems that they're not built yeah. To solve that no one is really built to solve, you know, like the Celtics are one of the better switching teams in the NBA and they're still not built to solve the problems that Steph creates. And when you think about like what made Boston's defense good this season, it's like spot for spot. They have a lot of really good defenders, the way they position Robert Williams around the basket and allow him to roam and block shots. It's like that doesn't really matter. Like, it doesn't really matter spot for spot if you're great across the board defensively. It doesn't really matter if you're protecting the rim, if Steph is going to pull up off one screen that comes six feet beyond like beyond the three-point line and he's stepping into open shots because all of your bigs are going to just get roasted by him off the dribble. I, I don't know who's supposed to solve that. I don't know who's supposed to have the answers for that. But as far as the other matchups the Celtics have had, like playing Giannis is a great training exercise for guarding Jimmy Butler. You know, like they, they mm-hmm. operate in similar spaces on the floor. They're different players. But like the mechanics of how you do those things are similar. There's nothing like guarding Steph. There just isn't. Yeah, and you know the problem that I've noticed for the Celtics defense is most of the found money, man, with the Steph stuff has been against Big Al, who you know they 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 rely on the guy, and he's just been deathly afraid 
to step out on Steph. He just doesn't have confidence in his ability to stay in front of him. And so he just stays back, which obviously is the death knell. I think the answer would have normally been the Time Lord, where he's so huge, so explosive, so athletic. He covers so much more ground. Um, but he's not feeling as mobile or looking as mobile as he would have normally been. And so now it's just like Grant Williams has to be the guy that steps up on these switches. And early on in the series, to be honest with you, I'm somebody who was like, you need to let Steph isolate. Uh, the amount of space that he's creating against Grant Williams is not tenable, right? Like, it's okay for Steph to get some level of daylight on his off-the-dribble, one-on-one step-back thing, but he's creating, like, you know, vistas between him and Grant Williams <laughs> so far this series. And so that's what I think the problem has been. It's like the big men haven't been able to deal with Steph in any meaningful way. And there's been times where Horford, you know, he switched on to Steph. He trusts his help, and the help came, and Steph kicked it out, and, you know, they were playing two other non-shooters, and so the defense can look stabilized. But other times, just Horford just doesn't seem confident in what he's supposed to do when he is matched up on an island with Steph. And I wonder if there's going to be some fixes for that. I think Boston's going to make some adjustments to that. But Horford is the guy. He's the one who the, 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 the Warriors have identified and said, we are bringing this man in screen and roll. Boston adjusts and sends another guy, um, uh, puts Al on a different guy, like, say, Gary Payton. And they're like, no, Gary Payton can come set the screen. Like, they, they want Al in those actions, and we'll see if he responds. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like the Celtics are confident in him either, which then puts him in a really awkward exactly. headspace. You know, like, they, they were switching and to your point was like they went to this other they went back to this drop again that has just been a disaster for them all series but it seemed like they were so worried about him getting torched off the switch that they're caught between all these different potential coverages none of which are great all of which seem to center around Al and Steph just kind of destroying him one way or another i i don't know what the answer for that is other than if you want to just trap him outright Steph and force the ball out of his hands and then you're getting into the classic Warriors four on three, three on two, Draymond picking out guys situation that that nobody really wants to see if you're playing against them. I think you got to stay yeah. true to the switch though, um, because and you know I've had some snarky Warriors fans hitting me like, oh, st- look at Steph's uh, you know isolation points per possession, blah blah blah. I'm like, first of all, that's not on the, at the volume and scale that I'm talking about. I'm like, he should have to do this all game, and I understand when he makes a step back. Uh, long two against Grant Williams, you're like, man, can we really sustain this? I think you have to believe in the process and believe in your defender's ability to make him work and do it over the course of a game, over the course of a series. Um, and I think that's the only answer. This four three shit, that that's death. Yeah, you're gonna die. I'm you with know, you. You need to trust in your league leading defense to keep Steph in front and make him shoot over a guy. That's it. Well, it's going to be an interesting next adjustment for for Adoka and specifically what the Celtics defense is going to do against Steph. I think you guys are right. The two big lineup, maybe we don't see that at all or maybe just in in certain doses. Um, And so I would imagine they're going to split up Horford and Williams minutes. I mean, we'll see how many minutes Rob Williams even gets. Um, What do you think about this idea? What do you think the Celtics match small for small? And they don't play a big and they actually go 
with Grant Williams at the five. Because as we saw earlier in game two, like there really wasn't anybody there to protect the rim when there's so much attention higher up on the court, like trying to manage the the ballet of, of what's going on with the Warriors that there were just so many dump off passes and so many easy layups anyway. So I don't know if you're necessarily sacrificing anything at the rim. And I wonder the mobility you get, the switchability you get by putting, I guess it would be Williams and maybe you put in Pritchard. I don't know who the, the four wings would be, but I wonder if that is a potential answer. What do you guys think about that? Well, but what does it solve? Cause Williams is still on the floor, you know, like they're, mm. they're just going to target him like they do Horford and attack him in similar ways. So unless you're willing to go Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown at the five, which I'm not advocating you do, I think it's a very bad idea. I don't think so. They're kind of stuck playing one big or another, and the Warriors are going to hunt those bigs, whoever they are, and they're going to get some good action out of it. And I think Waz is right. Like You have to learn to live with some of those outcomes and force Steph into high-usage, uncomfortable situations that he hasn't been all season. He, He has not been a guy who's been forced to isolate 20 times in a game. Exactly. It's just not a, not a thing that has been in his diet. And I get it. In the times that he's picked his poison and done it in these first two games, it's looked great against Grant Williams and Al Horford. But again, I submit to people like, you have to make these guys do it over and over again. And I keep telling folks like the, the compounding effect is that it's the exact antithesis of what Golden State has drilled into every single person on that team as to what they should be doing. And so mm. you're taking them out of their normal stuff and it's just like, make them do it. He's one of the 10 best players in the league. And I mean, in, ever in the, in the history of the game. So you're just like, man, should I be doing that? Should, is this how I want to die with Steph Curry holding the fucking machete and chopping my neck off? Or, you know, do I want to force other people to, by the way, make wide open jump shots? I, I, I think this is the better of those options. Some people might think I'm wrong, but that's just how I feel. Now we got mm. Professor Waz up here preaching regression to the mean. Bring those ISO, <laughs> ISO numbers down. Bring them up. Yeah, bring them on. Well, you guys, you know who appreciates a good low rate? Who's Our that? friends at State Farm. Oh, That's right. Wow. <laughs> that was what like a not egregious uh, transition there. I feel pretty good about that one. <laughs> um, all right, here we go. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. People assume that a team that wins in the playoffs is putting up huge offensive numbers, but some teams rely on their defense, a.k.a. the Boston Celtics, shutting down their opponent's top players and using the full court press. Was is there someone from this year's NBA playoffs who's put up a top defensive game that's caught your eye? Hmm. You know what? I would just say the entire first round series for Jason Tatum against KD. Um, He guarded KD in a way on an island that I've literally never seen before or I haven't seen since Tony Allen way, way, way back in the grit and grind days. Uh, So yeah, Jason Tatum... And that first round against the guy who's universally recognized as the single best one-on-one scorer of this time, um, Jason Tatum deserves some kudos for that. I mean, let's let's give some credit to these finals too, which two of the best defensive teams in the NBA, and in particular, Draymond Green on Jalen Brown. We talked about it a little on the pod already. That matchup has changed the series so far. Jalen shot five of 17 in game two, looked like a completely different player when Draymond was on him and closing out to him. Just a little change like that can make a huge difference in terms of how the matchups bear out. 
uh, for, you know, just the, the Celtics' ability to stay alive in this series. Mm. Well, Draymond Green's defense on Jalen Brown, Rob, it's kind of like people that assume they can't afford great insurance. But then they discover that State Farm has surprisingly great rates. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Get a quote today. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. It's 3 p.m. and dinner is still hours to come. Maybe lunch didn't quite hit the spot. That's where the new two for five dollar chicken wraps from Arby's come in. Available in ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for the afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Arby's two for five dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. Wads brought up Jason Tatum, which brings us to our next, probably most important question. Uh, Factor fiction, Tatum's Kobe obsession is really fucking weird. So on the one hand, he texts Kobe before game one, I got you today, which like not an uncommon thing to do with someone struggling with grief, right? You've heard this before. I'm like, okay, process however you want to process, right? But then he shows up to, what was it, the pre-game two press conference wearing Kobe's exact outfit (laughs) from his pre-draft workout with the Celtics. And I'm like, this is just really weird. (laughs) It wasn't just like the shirt. He wore the the whole ensemble. He wore the shorts too. And so, uh, Waz, I mean, you were there for it. Was anyone kind of like, what's going on with this guy? Is he okay? He's don't forget he's doing the Kobe armband as well. Yes. Um, but I, I want to give a shout out to my good friend uh Sabrina Merchant, uh friend of the podcast. She sent she was like, maybe Tatum is in on the joke and this is a bit. Because <laughs> I don't point, know. I don't know if he has he at, has that in him. At, at one point, his Instagram profile was like Kobe laying with the basketball on his stomach and a guy who looks exactly like Tatum doing the exact same thing, like one on top of the other. So like, this might be an elaborate troll. I really hope so, because it's it's one of those things where like people keep giving this attention. And am I just supposed to just like be a complete idiot and just be like, yeah, this is totally regular, normal, (laughs) not ridiculous at all. Like... The text thing was just like, all right, bruh, like you won, so you posted it. It's like, okay, we're giving you the text thing, but like, it's get, it's, it's just weird, man. It's just weird. And and I thought we were kind of over the like sort of, I don't even know what to call it. Like it was like Kobe porn at a certain point. Oh, it's it's never gonna stop. After he passed away, like it, it was like. This is the Kobeization of the Kobe, the Kobe. We relating everything to Kobe. Like that kind of calmed down. But with this Jason Tatum stuff, it's just gone to a ridiculous level. Like, I, I mean, bro, like wh- what is happening? I think what makes it weird is that it feels so performative. That it, it's not <laughs> like like you wanna you wanna wear the the training outfit that Kobe wore one time. In your private life, you want you want to go to sleep in that the night before the game. You want to do whatever you want. That's great. But like he's wearing it intentionally in front of cameras, in front of media members. He's he shows up to game two with a shirt with Kobe on it. It's just like all yeah. of and, and, and like, again, you want to send that text to Kobe's old phone. Great. As we said, like you're dealing with your stuff in your own way. Like no problems with that. But 
I hesitate as a media member to say maybe don't share that with people, but don't share that with people. Like, like something should be just for you. Can I counter though? Like, if you showed up to your dinner with Waz and the Ringer crew wearing an entire Kobe outfit. Yeah. With like the Boston Celtics workout shirt and the shorts, people would be like, that's really fucking weird. And like, so <laughs> even in your private life, if Jason Tatum were to do that, I think it's just a, a incredibly weird, lame thing to do. But then it's, then it's just him being him when he's doing it in this like extremely public, extreme, like a celebrity out in the world kind of way. That's like, again, he's not showing up like as Jason Tatum honoring Kobe Bryant. He's showing up in Kobe Bryant cosplay. <laughs> Right, just really weird and like at first a lot of people were like praising it like oh man you know he just got the the spirit of kobe coursing through his veins for this finals but eventually it just became like really kind of creepy uh i'm I'm glad you guys agree um all right last one factor fiction kind of related or at least an entry point into talking about tatum a little bit more uh actually it'd be nice if the celtics had a primary ball handler (laughs) like i keep hearing over and over again about like how complete they are as a starting five and like what it unlocks is a switchable defense and like how good the ball movement is with Derek white and yada, yada, yada. And yet every single series, pretty much like every other game at this point, we hear about the turnovers, 18 turnovers in game two, uh, Odoka pinpointed it yet again as the source of like the most consternation and the, the biggest thing that they needed to clean up. And I often find myself wondering like, yes, the move to have everybody do a little has like definitely taken the Celtics up a notch, but I do wonder if it would be great to just like turn the ball over to somebody who doesn't turn the ball over. Like, and I I just don't know if they're going to be able to like actually fix this in time for like the end of the finals. Do, Do you think this was their problem though in game two? Because I don't remember a ton of those turnovers that came from, a failure to organize. You know, it was like this guy trying to do sure. too much, this mm-hmm. person being in the wrong spot, and maybe a point guard or, or a proper ball handler solves all that stuff. But other than I remember one possession early in the fourth quarter where Al Horford decided to bring the ball up and got ripped <laughs> by Nemanja Bialica at half court. Other than that, I don't remember a ton that's like, oh, they really need a ball handler in this situation. Yeah, and for the most part, the ball is in the hands of the right people. And it's not like Jason Tatum isn't getting the good spots or Jalen Brown isn't getting the good spots. It's like Rob said. It's like these dudes are throwing skip passes to dudes who aren't freaking open. You know, they're not, it's not that they're not getting – they're getting into stuff pretty much every single possession. It's just I don't think they're maximizing what it is their advantages are. So – I'm not going to go too crazy about that. But again, like somebody like me, yeah, I always feel more comfortable when there's a guy like a Chris Paul, like a Kyle Lowry organizing every single possession because I know I'm going to get something out of it. Um, but I don't think the, the the wings are doing that awful of a job, especially, like I said, there are advantages to be pressed when Steph's guarding you, when Jordan Poole's guarding you, when Clay's guarding you, when Iggy's guarding you. And so, you know, if that's your starting point, where, like, the guy with the ball in his hands can pretty, like, it's feasible that he's going to create an advantage. It's not like Clay, for instance, creating or something like that. Like, I'm, I'm not mad at what they've done. But, you know, again, to your point, Justin, I always would like to see a goddamn point guard in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did, we did it, talk about, like, 
if not for the aberrational fourth quarter, would we be looking at in game one? Would we we'd be looking at Steph's performance and talking about just how dominant he's been? I think you could look at the aberrational third quarter in game two for the Celtics and say, you take this like 14 point blip out. I think Boston's offense has been really good by and mm-hmm. by and large in this series. Like they've gotten to the looks they that they've wanted nice to get looks, to. Yeah. They just they've missed layups, they've missed some open threes. Like I I process wise, I think their offense has been really good. What's going on with the third quarter thing? Like obviously the the Warriors are historically awesome in the third quarter dating back to 2014-15, but it doesn't really make much sense for the Celtics, a team that's ostensibly well coached to be worse coming out of halftime. And I don't really understand that. Like, can you guys? I think the Warriors have been a third quarter team for seven years now, right? Like, this is just obviously something, like, this isn't some blip on the radar. Like, it's not aberrational. Like, they they have been blitzing people in the third quarter since 14-15. Like, this is what they do. I, I think most teams, when the game is relatively close coming out of halftime, don't feel a sense of urgency, and the Warriors do. Like, I like I just think that's the difference. Like, it's like, all right, man, it's a three-point game. You know, we're going to get into our stuff. It's going to be fine and whatever. Whereas the Warriors are like, no, this is where we win. This is where we – this is the time of game where we actually put folks away and win the game. Um, and and I, that's a mentality thing to me more so than, like, something that's, like – ephemeral is like, oh, did they adjust at halftime? It's like, I don't know. Um, do you need to adjust at halftime when Steph Curry's splashing threes on your head top for like, you know, the first 15 minutes of a game? I, I don't know. I do think though with the Warriors, they're the kind of team where if they go back there at halftime and their coaches show them like one tiny weakness on film, that weakness is 12 points. You know, like that is like mm. you just work it over and over and they're like Steph is so dangerous and so explosive. They can take those like minor adjustments and make huge gains out of it. I do think that's a factor. And the mentality of knowing you can do that is a factor in that, too. Yeah. Tim Bontem said a good piece on uh, ESPN about this the other day, just like how this has been a consistent issue for the Celtics throughout the playoffs. And it's just like, it's really weird. It's one of those things that you can't really put your finger on, but I think it speaks to like the turnovers things where it's like, you know, like Rob, you, you bring up the good point. Like the margin for error for trying to beat the Warriors is just so sl- slim. And to have these sorts of issues that are essentially like correctable, yeah. um, that are kind of dumb mistakes that you're beating yourself or like that it just makes it that much tougher. This episode is supported by State Farm. Man, I remember when I first got into a car accident, it was pure frustration because I did not have State Farm. And now that I do have State Farm, it is an exclamation of pure joy. But the only words that you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Visible Wireless. Want a wireless provider that always brings its A-game? Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. 
Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. And as if that wasn't already a huge win, you could use promo code RINGER20 to receive $20 off your first month just for listening to us talk about basketball. Not bad, right? You don't need more than one line of wireless to save. Just switch to Visible at Visible.com and use promo code RINGER20. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. All right, we're a little uh, pressed for time here, so we're just going to limit this to one item on the coaching hot stove agenda and maybe we'll get to the rest of them down the road. Unfortunately for you guys, we're not going to talk about Darvin ham, but like just briefly, if we're talking about things that are just like really fucking weird, but ham talking about Russell Westbrook while Russell Westbrook just like loomed in the background almost to, to make sure he didn't say anything mean about him is, <laughs> is, is, is one of my favorite unintentional comedy moments of the past couple weeks. Anyway. Um, so Quinn Snyder resigns in Utah and a lot's going down as a result of that. Uh, let's 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 take the Snyder news first. Rob, are you surprised that Snyder is stepping away after eight seasons in Utah? No, but some of the mechanics of this stuff is kind of odd. Like I can't remember the last time an outgoing coach did a press conference with <laughs> the front office and ownership as he was leaving. Right. Like the, I get that they want to signal that this is an amicable split. I get that there's kind of value in that for all involved. But what what is happening here? I think, honestly, I want to give a shout out to Brad Stevens um, for last summer coming wow. out and being like, it's a wrap. This group and me are done. We did mm. everything that we can with this group. Like, I, like my voice, they're tired of it. I'm tired of them. Like, I love these guys, but the working thing is, is we just, we're done. We've reached the end of the road here. You know, at a certain point, how many times are we going to do the same thing over and over again? Say the same things, practice the same things, lose the same ways before it's just time for somebody to recognize that it's a wrap. And shouts to Brad Stevens for doing Brad Stevenson for doing it last summer and hiring Ime Udoka. And now shouts to Quinn Snyder. He's like, look, I'm going to get another good NBA job when I want one. I've done everything I can with this group. I love these guys, but I'm sick of you people. Let me go hang out with my family and I'll go do something else, have a fresh start somewhere else. I think this is a beautiful case of, you know, sort of sports self-awareness here, which is, you know, it's not a thing that we get in abundance in sports, but like Quinn Snyder's like, yo, we did it, man. It's over. I'm done. See you later. Sayonara, suckers. All I'm hearing was, as you talk about, People getting tired of, of his voice, of, of you know saying the same things over and over. And I'm hearing a scathing indictment of this podcast. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to be with you guys forever. Don't worry. <laughs> it was slightly ominous. Um, I, I read the press conference, Rob, as I need a fucking vacation but I want you guys to still pay me for it. I mean, <laughs> like, like, it's like this is an amicable breakup. Right. Yeah. It's like, I want to go away for a while. Neither of us is really happy, but I still want my money. And honestly, it's a pretty good gig if you can get it. But yeah, it it is pretty weird. I don't think you see that as often. I guess like Daryl Morey would be another recent example, but we learned how long uh, that worked out for him to be on vacation and spending time with his family. And for the record, I don't think it's the wrong decision for the jazz in terms of looking for that new voice moving in a different direction. 
like how how involved Donovan Mitchell wants to be and who decides that new direction, I think will be interesting. What role Rudy Gobert has in whatever that new direction looks like will be interesting. But the, the Jazz don't have a lot of capacity to pivot unless they want to make dramatic changes. Like we've already seen a lot of different slightly different versions of what the Mitchell-Gobert tandem surrounded by various role-player combinations looks like. Now we see how committed the Jazz are to making something that that is substantively different than that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this brings us to our next part. So almost as immediately as Snyder snapped down, or at least we got the news from Woj, we get the follow-up, which is that Mitchell is, in quotes, unsettled, unnerved, and wondering what it means for the franchise's future. Uh, And this kind of sent us down a pretty windy road where you're wondering, well, is Mitchell next out the door? Did he have such a tight relationship with Snyder or does this signal such a sea change that he's wondering, like, maybe I need to get the fuck out of here? Or as our friend Andy Larson from the Salt Lake Tribune mentioned, is this just Woj's slash Mitchell's way of getting Donovan more influence on the coaching hire. Uh, Larson phrased it specifically as CAA rep Donovan had CAA rep Woj release that he is surprised and disappointed about Quinn's departure so that CAA rep Johnny Bryant can get the job. Johnny Bryant is a New York Knicks assistant coach. And so I'm kind of like all over the place here. Uh, Rob, what's kind of like your top line takeaway from this giant stew of mess these guys are so good at this at this point like there is there's such a wide swath of people who are interested in sports but aren't seeing the andy larson level commentary on what is happening here that will just see oh my god donovan mitchell is so upset so so unnerved by the coach that everyone has suspected might be out after the season being out after this season uh it, it just it really does set up mitchell to be shown in a good light no matter what happens. Either he's the guy who stayed and he gets to have input or he's the guy who was unnerved and gets to leave. Like no matter what happens, Donovan Mitchell gets what he wants when you can frame it in these kinds of terms. I might be a little rusty on my Shakespeare, but is the line doth protest too much? Is that Shakespeare? Is that Mm -hmm. Nicki Minaj or something? Listen, (laughs) I I just don't... (sighs) Anybody with half a brain who follows this knows that Donovan Mitchell is not long for that damn franchise. Period. Nobody expects that Donovan Mitchell is going to finish out his career in Utah, much less the duration of the current contract that he's on. So all of those times when Mitchell and his camp were signaling, not happy in Utah, don't want to be here, would love to do something else, blah, 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 blah. Quinn Snyder was sitting there the whole time. Where was this Quinn Snyder gravitational pull? Where like, oh, I'm so tied at the hip to Quinn Snyder. Where was all this shit when he's dropping the rumors about wanting to get the fuck out of there? It didn't exist. So now I'm supposed to believe Quinn Snyder leaves. And it's like, oh, I just can't bear to be a Utah Jazz anymore (laughs) because of the loss of my beloved coach. It's absurd, y'all. It's absurd. And the bottom line is nobody believes that there's no other coach that this guy would want to play for. And if you wanted to be there very long term, influence the coaching hire. Go ahead. Pick your coach. Tell him I'm going to be here long term. I want to be involved with the decision. Let's put make me a part of the process. I'm jazzed for life. I'm getting it tatted on my forehead. I'm going to join the Mormon church. Let's go. <laughs> Let's ride. 
They ain't doing all of that. This is all, this is like, like Rob said, these guys are so expert at crafting this propaganda. It's, it's comical at this point. So what happens now then? Because if you were to choose between Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell, which it seems like is inevitable at this point, they're probably going to have to pick one or the other. If only because like Gobert is probably the only way to get something back in return to kind of like mix up the pieces and try something a little bit different around Donovan, if that is their choice. Uh, But it seems like Mitchell's the one who doesn't want to stay there long-term or at the very least might have his eye on other franchises or like, I think he would be the more coveted asset of the two. And so they're kind of like backing into a no win situation. I wonder if this gets pretty messy pretty quickly. Yeah, with a guy like Donovan Mitchell, it's not like there's a lot of room to play in such a different way that would be accommodating to him and want make him want to stay. Like, he already has the ball in his hands a lot. He already runs a lot of high pick and roll. He drives a lot of the action. I mean, I guess you could argue you could play him as your full-time point guard. I know we've had that conversation before as far as if that's kind of the optimal future for his career. Maybe that's something he wants or maybe it isn't. I honestly don't know. Uh, but as far as what they have now, like, Donovan Mitchell is a player who creates restrictions for your team. Like he is who he is defensively. He needs a certain amount of help unless you just want to punt on defense and trade Rudy Gobert and like go in like more of an offense first direction. And he's not a playmaker. There's that whole, that whole can of worms too. But (laughs) like, so you, you do kind of need these supplementary structures around him one way or the other, whether they're Rudy Gobert or Mike Conley or, you know, the erstwhile Joe Ingles or whoever it is like you, you need these guys who are going to do the things that he isn't going to do and how you find them with the resources that they have at present with where their, their salary situation is much easier said than done. Hmm. I think one of my questions is, is a team like the Knicks or one of these other teams rumored to be interested in Mitchell actually going to like give up the bag in order to go and get him? Like, are they going to pay the premium it's likely going to take to get a player four years under contract at $135 million left? He has a player option in the last year and actually provide him that off ramp. I don't know. Like if you're the Knicks, especially considering the history they have of making pretty mediocre decisions at best when it comes to like trying to procure like, like stars and like ending up with B level guys, like the history isn't great. And so I do wonder if like that would just put them in an issue that they've been in before. And so in that case, like is this headed for a stalemate? Like, I don't know why do you see a team that could like really need Mitchell or at the very least, like Mitchell becomes like the franchise in the way that like some of these other uh, disgruntled stars have been. I don't think so this summer because all indications right now, and maybe this is a bluff on the part of Ainge and them, is that they don't want to part with the dude. So basically that means somebody's going to have to blow them away with an offer, which doesn't feel forthcoming um, at this juncture. So I think he's, in all likelihood, they're going to play out the string again this season, probably just end up moving Rudy and then we're going to actually get into, like, the actual Mitchell sweepstakes next summer. Because um, the Jazz are just putting out, like, they're just putting out, fit, like, yo, we're not, we really want to stay with this guy. We want to stay on it. We think we can fix it. We think we could prove that this is ultimately the place that he wants to be. So outside of a, a great piece or somebody coming in and being like, yo, we'll give you super high lottery and a bunch of future stuff, like, it just doesn't seem like, 
the Donovan trade is there to be made right now because Utah thinks that, you know, with the amount of years left on his deal. And, and again, you can see it from the posture that Mitchell and his camp are taking. They're not coming back and being like, we hate it here. Get us out of here. It's like, oh, Quinn Snyder. Damn, we loved them. They, they're not taking the aggressive posture or tact, you know, as far as trying to be moved. So Utah doesn't want to move them. Donovan Mitchell doesn't seem to yet have the stomach to aggressively make them move him. So I don't think any of these um, things are going to come to fruition this summer. Hmm. I think we I think could. Next- we, I think we could stand to be unnerved more often on this podcast. Can we? Can we work toward a more unnerved energy? <laughs> I see another Kobe post, man. I tell you. I just want to listen to Waz do NBA players as Shakespearean theater. A little bit more. <laughs> well, NBA players as Shakespearean theater as Nicki Minaj was the full, the full sequence there. There we go. That's, uh, that's our ticket to the top, baby. All right. Uh, we'll be back next week. Same time, same place. Thank you to Isaiah Blakely on production. Thank you to Ben Cruz also on production. Uh, we'll see you again. 